Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Troy with uh, Dr. Josh and Marquis. Today we are here to talk about diets. Specifically, uh, the question we get a lot is what diet should I be on? So I just want to have a very general conversation to kind of let you know about the pros and cons of different diets, what's out there, and how to navigate that whole scenario on that question of what diet should I be on? So my first question is, Josh, is there a perfect diet for everyone? A per- well, I would say, it's <laughs> a hard question, perfect diet for everyone. No, I'm going to say it that way, no. One thing, way that I think about this, though, is there's short-term and long-term diet requirements that you might find yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. And in the short-term, we do a lot of short-term diets, especially when people come in with certain digestive issues. And that's meant to take a month, two months, sometimes more, but not indefinite to clean up a specific problem. Over the long term, I think there is probably a diet that is going to be best suited to certain people, but that's not, there's no obvious answer to that all the time either. Some of that requires trial and error. It requires knowing a lot about your metabolism. Um, it can change depending on stressors and environmental factors and exercise routine. Um, which makes it difficult. And that's why people ask us is because if you go online and you see fad diets, the idea there is, you know, you're going to, usually when people think of diets, they think of weight loss. I'm going to yeah. do a diet for a month and I'm going to lose 10 pounds, but that's not sustainable. So when we talk about diets, we don't talk about it in those terms. Yeah. The, the short term, think of it this way. There's, it's like kind of you're plugging holes, like holes in a dam when it comes to some of the short term stuff. And some of them are good and healthy and some of them are not. And so uh, having body awareness is key and crucial and a little bit of understanding of the methodology of why a diet, what it works on, because oftentimes we have to start someone on a diet and then change it. Or when you change your diet and certain things get cleaned up, eventually those things that got cleaned up aren't going to be the problems anymore. And there's going to be other things that are the problems. So there are some general rules to follow um, as far as different foods that tend not to work for the masses, but um, there are some diets that uh, that um, eventually we can get to a, well, a lifestyle diet. And what I'm going to say here is the majority of people have to do two, maybe three short-term diets until they can get to their lifestyle diet. If you started with a lifestyle diet and, and did that your entire life, then that's maybe all you need. I have some people who just have their routine down. They have kind of the same thing in their diet and their health is great. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, um, you know, they don't have to change too much, but they also don't do a lot of the bad habit stuff that leads to the need for the short-term diets. Yeah. So let's go through a couple examples. What's a, what's a good short-term diet that's a good example? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give a personal example too that will lead yeah. into this. In my, in my health history, you know, I've had to do a few short-term diets in order to get to my current long-term one. And usually, I mentioned this before, they have to do with digestive health for a lot of people. Yes. And so for me, I've had to do a low FODMAP diet before, and I currently still 
uh, restrict gluten and dairy. I've learned that so about what's myself. So what's low FODMAP? Yeah, exactly. So as a short-term diet, if we think short-term diets for digestive health, there are several. Low FODMAP, which I'll explain, is one, and there's offshoots to that, um, low, like an anti-candida diet, low histamine diets, GAPS diets. Um, a lot of those, the goal there is to remove foods that are causing imbalance in your digestive tract. FODMAPs, it's an acronym for something that I don't can't even spit out. It's, it's the a, fermented <laughs> fermented foods, yeah. and um, there's a variety of different FODMAPs categories. But these are found in healthy foods, and this is why it's sometimes a a surprise for people. For instance, avocados are high in FODMAPs. Apples are high in FODMAPs. Um, broccoli can be high in FODMAPs and Brussels sprouts. A lot of things that you would consider, hey, these are healthy foods, and we restrict foods like that temporarily because um, those the things in foods like that, the FODMAPs, are good at um, growing bacteria and things in your intestinal tract. If you have good bacteria in your intestinal tract, then those foods are great. And if you've got bad bacteria in your intestinal tract, well, then you're feeding the bad stuff. Yeah, so let me just uh, repeat that part because <laughs> yeah. the same diet in one person will make them feel great and another person will, will make them feel worse. And it's short term because you should be able to add those foods back in yes. and eat those successfully. So let me repeat that again. So the, so the <laughs> yeah. same diet that caused harm uh, a few months later is the diet that's going to keep you going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you guys hear that on the radio? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people come in on unnecessarily restrictive diets yes. because of things that they've tried or heard or things that may have been problematic in the past. And then we sometimes we have to work on people's uh Mental, well, mental, not capacity, that's the wrong way to put it, but people have to learn how to eat these foods again because there can yeah. be baggage, asso- yeah, component. there can be baggage associated yeah. with, and not negatively necessarily, but people get locked into thinking, oh, I can't have this food because it's bad for me. Yeah. But that very well, that changes over time if you're healthier. Yeah, I'm going to read off FODMAP so people can. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So that's basically yeah, that's, 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 that's it. Yeah, I always tell people it's the fermentable sugars. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, you just described it very well. I'm going to talk a little bit about my favorite short-term diet because of um, scenarios that impacted my life, and so. Uh, very uh, young age, I had my, uh, well, teenager actually, I uh, had my appendix out. And there's uh, a theory that the appendix actually is not just an, an, uh, a useless appendage or organ, but it actually helps with the lubrication of the ileocecal valve, which is the valve between the small and large intestine. And so uh, with that, I have historically oftentimes had to go to an ileocecal valve diet. I really want to explain this because it's the same scenario where it, you have to avoid food that's really good for you and then eventually bring them back in. Well, if you're not getting the lubrication on that ileocecal valve, then it can become inflamed. And any part of your inflammation, the way I uh, describe it to my patients is think about a massage on your muscles and how good that can feel at relaxing the muscles where the, you basically, the massage therapist will rub the muscles and then get them to relax. Well, that's great, but if you do that exact same technique after getting a really bad sunburn, that massage now doesn't feel so good. In fact, it's irritating and causes not just physical discomfort locally, but also some brain 
issues with that as well. So if your ileocecal valve becomes inflamed, we have to avoid foods that are high in fiber, which are normally good for you because fiber's job, insoluble fiber's job, is to rub rub up against the sides of the walls of the intestine to clean them, if you will, to keep them uh, healthy. That's great unless it's inflamed. So if the valve is inflamed, you have to avoid raw fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and then irritants, things that cause further inflammation. And these are usually the culprits. That's number one is caffeine and coffee, uh, sugar and alcohol. So those are three pro-inflammatory foods that you have to avoid. And then you can't eat the good things. And popcorn is one of the worst offenders. Once the, the inflammation is there, then the valve um, also doesn't do well with uh, the sharp edges of the undigested popcorn kernels. And so we restrict all of that for three days to a couple weeks, and then we slowly bring that back in, cooked vegetables. And the differences uh, in um, how they can tolerate the foods are, are crazy. Mm-hmm. And when your ileocecal valve becomes spasmed, it causes all kinds of weird things in the body. It can cause uh, fluid retention in the legs. It can cause and mimic carpal tunnel or sciatica because of fluid retention in the arms. Uh, right-sided neck pain, shoulder issues are common. Headaches, migraines uh, are also very common because of the uh, reaction of the muscles. And so I've had people with ileocecal valve problems come in. And when we do a history, we, we realize that they've had issues for 20 years where they have these symptoms off and on. And it's not that hard to fix, to be quite honest. And so we start people on that ileocecal valve diet by avoiding those inflammatory foods and even the good raw fruits and vegetables and um, then slowly bring that back in. And I like to have the veggies be cooked and um, when you bring them back in and uh, and kind of move forward from there. And then you also work on the things that can help lubricate the valve, which is usually... Uh, supporting it with some uh, vitamin D and uh, a lot of the oils, fish oils, uh, wheat germ oil works very well. I find it interesting that a dysfunctional ileocecal valve is one of the, this is in in the scientific research too, one of the three identified ways that you'll cause that dysbiosis that we talked about with the LoFODMAP diet. Yeah. Because you get stuff essentially going the wrong way. Yes. Going down a one-way one way street the, the wrong direction. Yeah, the short version is that the bacteria that grows in your GI tract should not be growing in your small intestine. That's where we absorb a lot of nutrients. And so it's kind of like planting the garden inside the house. Gardens are great, but they shouldn't be inside the house. This uh, probiotic garden should be in your large intestine, not your small intestine. Yep, exactly. Other short-term diets. Let's, let's mention low histamine too, because this is another yeah. one that... I use, I would say sparingly, um, but for some people it can be a home run. Now, histamine, um, histamine is the thing that will trigger an allergic response. So watery eyes, runny nose, that type of thing. In the digestive tract, it causes bloating and pain. And so for some people with digestive issues, it can be a histamine problem. Um, a low histamine diet is one way to assess whether or not those foods are the trigger. But I, I find that it's not a great long-term strategy because it's quite difficult. I use it usually in two, like a two-week increment, because if you can cut it even out for two weeks and it changes your symptoms significantly, well, then there you go. You've got a good answer, and you can work on other stuff to support that. Uh, but if it doesn't work, well, well then uh, two weeks gone is not too long from a diet approach. Yeah, and right now uh, we're in a uh, season. The spring allergies are, are popping up, and so... Uh, People with histamine issues uh, can oftentimes 
put in a temporary diet while their environmental reactants are acting up and it can get some help there as well. But uh, you'd be surprised at the foods that uh, uh, once you eliminate some of the histamines, and, and it's not necessarily eliminating those foods. I'll give you an example. One of the things that uh, I have seen is that uh, like, like meats, bar- especially this season of barbecuing, you can barbecue and literally have uh, a low histamine piece of protein. And then uh, as that protein is left out or you have leftovers, the histamine count actually increases. So you can have a histamine reaction where you bloat to the leftovers, but not mm-hmm. to the actual meal that you had originally. Yeah. So fresh food, that's a different caveat with this. It's not just about avoiding those foods. It's about eating them when they're fresh. Yeah. And being able to tolerate the histamine often improves when you change the other two things we just talked about, the yes. ileocecal valve and, and the low FODMAP stuff. Yeah, and you can massage your ileocecal valve at home. Mm-hmm. So I, I have people do that all the time um, as just getting into a habit. And you'd be surprised at the level of function that returns with their ability to digest foods and uh, tolerate other foods. Yeah. All right, any other short-term? Am I saying anything about GAPS or Candida diets? That Those are kind of... Mid-range. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, they kind of are offshoots of what we already talked about. Yeah, GAPS is a uh, type of diet that, uh, especially anything that's affecting the brain, there's a book um, called GAPS uh, that, uh, um, I mean, they use it for uh, more intense psych- psychological scenarios. Schizophrenia is the end extreme of that, but even some uh, issues centrally in the brain where you're not getting... Uh, the support by working on the gut, which they call the second brain, it can help quite a bit. And then candida diet is really just pulling out all the sugars that candida feed off of mm-hmm. and uh, helping to restore an environment where your um, good bacteria can grow again. And I'm going to say it this way. So this year, I, I am constantly in a battle with weeds in my yard uh, and because uh, I just don't, I don't spray chemicals on them. I don't put Roundup or glyphosate. And so I've already started the process of, I, I got a dethatching completely done. And um, I spoke with a botanist and did some um, digging into what this botanist uh, was talking about. And they have a different strategy where they just choke out the weeds by overpopulating the grass. So you seed the grass over and over and over again. So uh, as as I was reading it and as she's describing it, I was thinking, oh, that's funny. That's what we do in the intestinal tract. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me. Because when you can mimic what happens in the body Mm -hmm. in the world, Mm -hmm. there's success with that. So that's my new strategy this year. After 25 years of doing this, you think I would have come to that <laughs> aha by now, but nope. This year's the year, though. The neighbors are even commenting. Yeah. So I had I was I was seating late last night. Actually, I had three of them come out, and they're like, "What's the strategy this year?" <laughs> it's gonna work eventually. It's gonna work eventually. Until then, we're just the 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 dandelion yard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think to wrap up short term, um, just an overarching strategy, you know, the, the ICV, low histamine, low FODMAP are often starting points for us. We often scale up to gaps, candida, yeah. um, in certain situations that are, that are more challenging. Same with elimination diets more generally, pulling foods out temporarily. Yeah. I'm, I would put fasting as a short term yep. diet too, mm-hmm. just because I've heard that if you fast for long term, <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. yeah. And fasting, um, 
we've, we've spoken about this in the past, but it, there's so much value there because when you fast, you're literally giving your organs a break. So think of it this way. When you are stressed because your schedule is too demanding uh, and you just need to sleep or you just need a vacation to decompress from all of the mental responsibilities that you have in your life, that's what fasting is. Because when we have stress, we crave salt and sugar. Those things are hard on our digestive system, which then has a net impact on our hormones and our brain later on. So fasting, even if you're just starting with a a 12-hour fast uh, or intermittent fasting, that's a good thing. Eventually getting to a full one-day, two-day, or three-day fast, and then on occasion doing a more extended fast under guidance, or if you're um, well-educated on it, can be quite beneficial. Um, I will say this, that in today's age, with all of the chemicals and toxins and, and other components, um, if you do an extended fast, I had a patient who is, has not come in, but it's a relative of one of our patients, do a 40-day fast, mm-hmm. and it kind of wrecked things. So uh, mm-hmm. the stuff was not being uh, looked at uh, or n- nourished appropriately. And so that can be a little challenging in today's age uh, without... Uh, going to a fasting center or under the supervision of a doctor who's, who knows what to do with fasting. But three-day fasts, brilliant. A lot of great recovery. Uh, you'll be shocked at some of the brain clarity you get back. If you end up just detoxifying the whole time, then we're going to call that feedback. <laughs> and uh, that means that things have to be cleaned up. If you want to get into a fasting mode and have it be therapeutic, start off by doing an anti-inflammatory diet or a, a candida diet uh, for a couple weeks mm-hmm. first and then get into a fasting diet. Um, even when it comes to things like our treatment of Lyme, we have found uh, recently that uh, a three-day fast once a month is more effective than some of the antibiotics and some of the more harsh um, or less harsh uh, herbal treatments. But the fasting uh, has a huge impact on that. So if it can help with Lyme, it can help with other infections and cleaning up uh, a lot of other things. So fasting... Um, especially in this world, uh, boy, is it uh, got a lot of benefit. Yeah. You hit on something that I think is important when we talk long-term diet strategies, and it's the idea of of kind of cycling or rotating diets. A lot of the diets that are long-term can either be, um, well, like, like fasting, that's not a long-term thing. It's not a long-term diet, but it can be a long-term strategy to employ fasting, um, similarly with ketogenic diets, um, with certain elimination diets, even doing vegan or vegetarian, some people benefit from doing this occasionally to cycle on and off stuff. Whereas I, I try to help people find what's your baseline healthy diet. Yeah. And then what are some things that we can use every once in a while that can be promoting better health throughout the year? Yeah. And I, I get a lot of questions about people saying, should I go vegan or vegetarian? And I, I say, depends. Yeah. And I'll say this, my healthiest patient I probably have is a vegan and my most unhealthy patient I probably have is a vegan. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it just depends. It, does your body need protein? If you're, if you're taxed from a stress component and you're just doing vegan, you've got to get the protein up. That's one of the best things to help with the adrenal function. Mm-hmm. However, um, I just talked about not using chemicals on my yard because of Roundup. Mm-hmm. If you're all vegan and you're consuming all of the genetically modified vegetables or uh, toxic glyphosate loaded uh, veggies, then you're basically undoing a lot of the benefit of a plant-based vegan diet. Yep. And so you have to make sure it's clean from pesticides. You just, you just do. We have one of my patients that I said is very, very unhealthy as a vegan. 
um, is because they're just loaded with chemicals and pesticides. They don't have the capacity or the glutathione to help get it out of the body. And it was just years of, of toxifying uh, herself. And then the stress would cause sugar cravings, mm-hmm. which was acceptable uh, in the vegan oh, diet sure. scenario. And so plants and sugar um, that are all loaded with toxins and inflammation is not it's a not good, good. Yeah. So you have to, you, you can't be married to uh, a diet to the point of uh, having it continue to compromise your, your system. So awareness is key. Mm-hmm. Same thing um, on the other side of it. If you're just doing all meat diet and uh, we've got, there is a carnivore, there's diet. a carnivore <laughs> diet. I was yeah. about to go there, which has some benefit and does have uh, an impact. In fact, the uh, Inuit of Northern uh, Canada, that's really all they, mm-hmm. they can eat at times um, where they just, and especially historically, where they just lived off of the whale blubber and meat and yeah, organs and organs, and uh, and they did quite yeah. well. Yeah. So uh, even even with meat, then you have to be careful what quality too. Yes, right? absolutely. Because if you have a a cow that never gets to move and just eats corn and gets injected with stuff, well, that that does affect you too and the meat that you eat if you're yeah. eating that meat. I think a, a lot of what boils down to long term diets then is quality. And avoiding inflammation, yes, regardless of what the strategy is. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a lot that goes into this because our the FDA has got to do a better job of regulating our, the food that we're eating. Because uh, there's a quote uh, that said, you know, let the food be our medicine. That is a hundred percent accurate because if that that's what re- makes our cells in, internally. And so the quality of food that we consume is super important. And I'm just going to say this: they have contaminated our um, food supply, whether it be meat or plants. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to get back to eating clean food. And so, um, and that includes the, the practices as far as how they, uh, raise the animals, uh, free range chickens, always better than, I'll say it this way. If you are consuming a stressed out chicken and you're, your the the meat is different. So just like we have stress, what happens to our muscles? They get tight. They get get more tense. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're consuming it, uh, high-level chefs will tell you the difference between a good uh, chicken and a stressed-out chicken. They can tell because of the the tension in the meat. But also the stress hormones have an impact on the the entire, all the cells, uh, including the muscle cells of that animal. And so why, as a stressed-out human being, would we want to have a cortisol-laden um, piece of protein as well? Yeah, that reminds me of um, who is the researcher on cattle. She is famous because she's also autistic. Um, oh, it's right at the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Anyways, she did, she did research on, on cows and keeping them less stressed by the way that they're putting them into, into shoots and, and all these things. And because even the way that that meat is called harvested yes. itself, even if the the animal lives a, a a calm, happy life, if they're stressed during the last moments of their life, that alone affects the meat. I, I wish I could remember her name. Are you gonna find it? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I better. Yeah. We'll think of it as soon as we stop recording. Yes, absolutely. Uh, point being, though, again, where the 
Is it Temple Grandin? Yeah, it is. Yep. Temple Grandin. Yes. Yeah. So she's. That sounded like a name to me. Yeah. Temple uh, Grandin. Temple yeah. Grandin. Yeah. I found out. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But that's right. Yeah. So she's, she has a lot of interesting research on, on that very point. So, anyways, quality of, of, of food, regardless of it being plants or animals. And that's what I tell a lot of people when we're doing, we do a, um, a muscle testing food assessment of food sensitivity testing through muscle testing. What I tell people with that test is that this isn't telling you that you can never eat this food again. Yeah. This is telling you that this food right now seems to be a stressor and the quality of your diet going forward, if we can fix things and you could usually bring a lot of those foods back in, especially if they are high quality. Yeah. And so we just know that there's some level of a, a reaction going on there. And that kind of brings us to our next mm-hmm. diet, which is elimination diet. So yeah. if you're, if you want to figure out what food works for you, uh, let's just be a little logical about this and, you know, sorry for being guys on this one, but, uh, <laughs> this is the best way, um, cost effective way without working with a doctor or anyone to figure out what you should and shouldn't have. So you basically, uh, can start with a fast, um, and then start bringing in foods, try with foods that are, uh, the least, uh, problematic. So don't start with sugar as your first food that you're bringing right back in. <laughs> But you basically just eliminate all food, and then you bring in uh, a food one at a time, a food group, so dairy versus other things. And if you have any type of reaction, and for me, I, I tell my patients, it could be anything. It could be anything from a headache uh, to a little bit of weight gain on the scale to feeling a little sluggish mentally or physically. And then if you have that, you have to document it. And just because it came on once doesn't mean you have a reaction to that food. It means that it came on once. So then you pull that food back out and then see if things kind of clear up. And then when you bring it back in again, see if they have the same response. Because there are a lot of other factors. Not having a bowel movement or having stress uh, at work or in your your personal life can also have some impact. So just be sensitive to the fact uh, that uh, it could be other things. And then see if it's reproducible. Mm -hmm. After a while, you'll start to see, yep, when I have this, it's not good. And so when I have dairy, it's not good. Um, but I can get away with um, butter, but not cheese or not yogurt or not milk. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of discernment that's, uh, that's needed there. But the elimination diet is a way to figure it out. It takes a long time. Um, but if you do your due diligence, you'll start to yeah. zero in on uh, the right diet for you. I find that that's better than doing food allergy testing from a lab perspective. Yeah. And I think we may have mentioned this during our, our lab podcast, but there are so many different types of food allergy testing available, whether it's testing different parts of the immune system through antibodies or through immune activation. And those don't overlap. And so if you're testing just one test and going off of that for a diet, you're very well going to be missing something. Yeah, so we'll, an elimination diet is usually more effective. It's more effective because uh, the lab testing is not 100%, like you're saying. And we'll still use it on occasion. Mm-hmm. And there are there are other labs out there like LEAP that just measures any type of cellular fluid shift, which tells you a little bit more. Um, but even those uh, tests can be uh, not all inclusive or can change after a couple months. So, so there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at the food. But again, if you just have heightened awareness of what's going on in your body, uh, you can start to zero in on it. And it actually is kind of the easiest lift um, when it comes to long term, but just takes a while. It takes a little bit of focus and attention. Yeah. Along with that, then let's talk autoimmune ideas too because in autoimmune situations 
just generally high level, what are the, what are the factors that we look at when, when we're looking at autoimmune? Cause diet is one yep. and there's some other things too. Well, the autoimmune we're seeing is the fastest growing uh, condition because, and, and this goes along with the histamines as well. We are becoming more and more intolerant to the world that we're in right now. And so, uh, autoimmune basically means confused immune system. Histamines are you reacting to your environment. And so uh, there are certain things internally that help regulate that. By far, the most important is vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D helps to feed the part of our immune system that goes and tells your immune system what to attack as a foreign invader, like a virus or bacteria, or what to react to like an allergen. Um, and it helps, it's meant to help save our life in two different ways. And so, but the problem is when it is overreacting to things it shouldn't be, uh, that doesn't recognize, uh, and even when it's, uh, over attacking things that it shouldn't be. And a lot, a lot of times it's because, um, we've altered food or altered things in our environment and that's created a confused immune system. And again, sunlight's needed for vitamin D. So the more sunscreen you slather on there, the more you're actually preventing vitamin D from being absorbed. So it's a very unique scenario. We don't want you to get sunburnt, but we also want you to get sunscreen or vitamin D from the sun. <laughs> sunscreen. Sun exposure. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we need the sun exposure. And so we're seeing a, a whole generation of kids that uh, we're not allowed to be in the sun that are, we're having negative consequences right now. So it's very, very important to remember that, that vitamin D is very, very much needed. Also, glutathione is key for autoimmunity or a good immune system and uh, our omega-3 oils, both of which can be depleted quite a bit. Omega-3 helps with inflammation. So the more uh, inflammation we have, the more we deplete our omega-3. Uh, glutathione is depleted by a lot of things, glyphosate being one of them, but environmental chemicals. And we were just talking about that this morning in our, in our meeting, just all the different things that can deplete uh, glutathione and how important it is um, when we're talking about fighting certain diseases, including COVID and, mm -hmm. and Lyme and other, uh, other infections and removal of heavy metals uh, and toxins from our environment. Uh, glutathione is the master antioxidant for that. Yeah. When those things don't work, you mentioned the tolerance piece. Eventually, your body will stop having tolerance to yourself. Yes. Right? And that's that's autoimmunity. And autoimmunity can be rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, Hashimoto's, thyroid problems, MS. You know, there's there's a whole gamut of it. In a situation, in that situation, it's sometimes useful to do a type of elimination diet called an autoimmune paleo diet. The point is very similar. You're trying to reduce potential triggers that are causing the inflammation that that cause the autoimmunity. One thing though, and we touched on this briefly already, some people who have autoimmune disease think they need to be excessively strict with their diets. But I know several people, several patients of mine that have autoimmune, but diet isn't the trigger. Yes. Right. And so being unnecessarily restrictive again is detrimental from a nutrition perspective. Yeah, and we want to make sure that we uh, to plug the holes, so to speak, with the, with the damage that's being caused. And there are times as we get older when uh, our cells go in and clean up a lot of our old dead and dying cells. But that should be happening when we're older. It's called uh, senescence. And it's a, a component that we shouldn't be uh, inducing when we're in our 30s. 
So another way to look at it is uh, with this confused immune system, it's almost like we're aging our cells, that part of our body, mm -hmm. to that of an elderly 70, 80, or 90-year-old uh, in 30 years. Because of the um, confusion that, uh, that or the, just the workload that the immune system has to work against, mm -hmm. and a lot of it comes from our diet and lifestyle and the environment around us. This is what, going back to fasting again. One mechanism that occurs in your body when you're fasting is the clearance of those dead or zombie cells, yes. the senescent cells, yeah. through a process called autophagy. Yeah. 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 yeah, which is, yeah, I think we're going to be seeing more and more uh, fasting scenarios. And we're just, we're talking, this is a time, so just for people listening to this in the future, we're in uh May of 2022 and uh, gas prices are going up through the roof and then uh, food shortages are uh, uh, pending right now uh, in our future. So I'm going to say uh, you can go ahead and stock up, but get good at fasting and then that'll help quite a bit too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah. yeah. All right. What else have we got for um, Let's, some of the other diets? Yeah. Or Let's talk one more kind of category. Okay. I'll talk it, about it for more of a cardiovascular sort of weight perspective because there's let's talk about blood sugar briefly and then kind of the idea of mediterranean we'll throw keto in there too because all of those have some similarities um, blood sugar if it's too high is yep. a extreme inflammatory source for your cardiovascular system yes. this is why most people who have diabetes of some sort end up dying from cardiovascular disease That's yeah one of heart the, attack or yeah. kidney issues yep and the kidney issues then are from the high blood pressure, yeah. usually from the cardiovascular problems. Yeah. The idea of a low glycemic diet is something that's, that we want to talk about quick. Glycemic index or glycemic control is your body and you, for, through your diet, your ability to control blood sugar. Blood sugar that's out of control, even if you're not diabetic, can creep up and continue to cause problems, even if you're borderline. Yeah. So there's, so there's natural sugars that are bound by fiber, and when you consume those, because they're attached to fiber, think of it like a branch with a bunch of berries that are on there. And as it goes through your digestive system, the branches eventually kind of dissolve, break off, and then the berry that's full of sugar gets released into your body. So that happens over time. So a low glycemic food um, will uh, deliver sugar, and a lower amount of sugar uh, over time, whereas a high glycemic food is uh, going to deliver more of a sugar, a higher sugar impact, at least the body's uh, reaction to it. So I'll give you an example. Fruit in its whole form mm -hmm. that's bound, where the sugars are bound to fiber, like an apple or an orange, have a lower glycemic index than fruit juice. Fruit juice, you have the sugars that have been released um, from the, the fiber um, bond so that you end up spiking the blood sugar. Our body doesn't do well when our sugar gets too high or too low all of a sudden. It's got to react to counter that. It does that by making insulin if it's too high. And so, uh, and, and, uh, releasing glycogen, uh, if it's too low. So having the liver work. But again, if the liver is stressed out from other factors, that can, that can become problematic. And then what does the commercials where they tell us to do? When your blood sugar is too low, the commercial gets this part right. It says, you're not quite acting like yourself, <laughs> yeah, which is right. true. We get hangry. Have a Snickers. Yeah, and it says, have a Snickers, <laughs> which is high glycemic, yeah. which means it's going to cause a rebound low blood sugar. It'll help for about a half hour. <laughs> It'll help for half an hour. Then it causes a rebound low blood sugar where you're not quite yourself. So what do they say? 
have a Snickers. Yeah. Yes. So they're, it's brilliant marketing, really, because they're creating a scenario where they get the, they're creating the problem and the solution at the same time. Well, the Snickers might be better than other things because it has peanuts. Yes, that's true. It might be, yeah, it might be better than just pure straight yeah, chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the best extreme ways to control blood sugar is a ketogenic diet. Yes. And this is a popular thing to do. I don't, I don't find that it's long, a long-term strategy for most people, but it's a good cycling strategy yeah. like we talked about. The idea, I look at ketones as the kind of opposite side of a teeter-totter for energy production as, as blood sugar. If you eat carbohydrates, the fruit, things we just talked about, you're going to get blood sugar. Yeah. You can have basically no carbs in your diet or very little and still produce enough energy by making something called ketones from fat, right? Yeah. So fat burning strategy. This was popular popularized, I believe, by Johns Hopkins for seizure control. Yeah. And so we use that a lot in, in our patients that we work with with seizures. But it's also very helpful for people with blood sugar problems, weight problems, and basically energy metabolism issues and yeah. weight issues and blood sugar control. Well, and brain function too, because mm-hmm. uh, yeah, dementia and Alzheimer's, right, exactly. it's, it's very helpful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Alzheimer's in a lot of ways is your brain's inability to use sugar for fuel. Yeah. There was a time, we now know there's five and a half, six categories for all Alzheimer's dementia that people fall into, but there was a time early on where they just called Alzheimer's type three diabetes or diabetes of the brain because of how many people they're seeing uh, with sugar regulation issues in the brain. But that's how important it is. Yeah. That is still one of those categories. It is. Still. It is still to this day one of those categories and one of the easier ones to fix of the of the six categories. But uh, also... Um, that's only if the I'd say it's person's... straight. It's straightforward. It's not yeah. always easy for well, the person. Right. Straightforward is a better way of saying it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah easy peasy <laughs> reversal of de- dementia. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the other uh, causes of dementia, the success we've had, which we, we're trained here in the breast and technique. This is a podcast for another time, which we've touched on. But uh, if you if you are listening to this and that kind of tweaked your your uh, mind a little bit. There's a book called The End of Alzheimer's by Dr. Dale Bredesen. And it's a great book to read up on. And uh, that's the essentially the protocol we use with our uh, dementia and Alzheimer's patients. So keto is, um, like you said, not necessarily a for-life diet. Some people can do it and get away with it. And if you do that, you have to make sure you cover yourself with antioxidants as well. So uh, that generally means supplementation is needed. for that at some point. And we saw that with Atkins diet uh, early on, but they also included uh, a lot of other things that just weren't healthy, like aspartame and stuff like yeah, that. It's higher protein. So it can be a better higher protein. Yeah. Like so keto is yeah. a better version. Mm-hmm. This, this next diet is a lifestyle diet that uh, we see has had benefit um, for quite a while. And that's the Mediterranean diet or the mm-hmm. cardiometabolic diet. And when we talk about, I mentioned before, have a healthy baseline, this is a healthy baseline diet because Mediterranean diets are going to be something that's uh, sustainable long term that you get all of your nutrients from that allows you to eat, you know, some carbs, some you know, fruits and vegetables, some proteins. It's not limiting necessarily, but it really does fall into the category of high quality nutrients and food that we already talked about. Yeah, and uh, it is historically cardioprotective, which um, cancer and cardiovascular disease dysfunction are usually one and two when it comes to what takes us down. 
And so if you eat a very colorful Mediterranean diet, it has the antioxidants that help protect us against uh, uh, a lot of the, the cancer stuff. Um, and so that's similar to the antioxidant diet. The bottom line is if I was to say one thing, because this, this, generally speaking, is allowed in almost all diets, and that is vegetables. Mm -hmm. If you could do just one thing with all your diets, except for fasting, because fasting is fasting, but if you could add one to two servings of vegetables with every meal, that by itself is a game changer. Mm -hmm. Because as we age, we need, we need more fiber, but we can't have an inflamed GI system to add the fiber in there. So if you were to do just one thing, it would be find the vegetables that work for you and have that. And even if you're a breakfast person, like for example, one of my favorite breakfasts is Brussels sprouts with, uh, I shouldn't have led with Brussels sprouts. My favorite breakfast is eggs with turkey <laughs> bacon and Brussels sprouts. But cook the Brussels sprouts just a little bit. So they're still hard and crunchy. A little bit of throw the eggs on top with a little bit of turkey bacon and That's Cholula sauce. And it's phenomenal. It's one of my favorite breakfasts. Yeah. So you answered our initial question. What diet should everybody do? And it's eat more vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what you do, you got to have your veggies. Two servings. Yes. And so Mediterranean diet uh, works great with. Even keto diet uh, works great with. Yeah. Um, elimination diet. Uh, and then there's a, there's a couple other diets in there too. One of the things I want to touch on just before we go here is the food combining diet. Mm, okay. um, th this was kind of made popular years ago uh, when Suzanne Summers came out and said she hasn't had gas. I think the quote was for like 15 years or something like that because she did a food combining diet. Now, she was going through breast cancer and other stuff, and she cleaned up her diet. But one thing she noticed is that when she combined the foods properly, she didn't have any gas or bloating. And so she, which basically means you can't eat fruit with proteins. So um, you can have protein and vegetable together. You can have vegetables by themselves. You can have fruit by themselves. You can have carbs or starches um, by themselves, and but you can't combine them with protein. So when, and that's kind of how we used to eat back in the day because we would eat whatever we could find. Mm -hmm. And so rarely was it uh, steak and potato and it was what's in the garden. Well, we got potatoes today. All right, today we're having potatoes and or potato soup, stuff like that. So the food combining diet is a very interesting one. And a lot of people get bloated or if you just kind of clean up a few things and you can eat stuff like an hour or half an hour apart, but um, they would uh, separate the carbs um, from everything else and, and uh, the fruit from everything else. And so if you look up, there's a lot of charts online, just food combining diet. That's very interesting. Yeah. All right. So that, in a nutshell, our diets, we get asked this all the time. And uh, the, the secret, again, is have awareness of self, what works for you, what doesn't. Uh, try them out. Um, we do have people that uh, work with you, or you can find someone uh, locally to probably work with you on the diets to help problem solve some of it. But uh, it's also something that, with a little bit of effort, you can do on your own to get started and so we encourage people to just figure out what diet works best for them. And the last thing I'm going to say is be mindful when you are eating. Chew your food. Um, uh, I like to pray over it, chew, chew it, take breaks. Um, this is one area I'm not that good at because I tend to devour my food very quickly because I'm usually going, yeah, patient, I got a patient, patient <laughs> coming exactly. five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> and so... 
but uh, it's something very important to to work on. Be very mindful when it comes to what you're putting in your mouth and stop when you're still hungry. If you can stop when you're still hungry, wait a little bit, 20 minutes, then uh, uh, see if you're still hungry. If you're not, you're done. And so we don't have to eat everything that's on our plate. So smaller portions, uh, we've talked about this in the past, but even buy smaller plates or use smaller plates uh, for your dinners and stuff. And, and they'll help those that are not overeating. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those that need to eat more, get bigger plates. Fill them up. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few of you out there. Yep. yep. Josh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're the second person today that's harassed me on that. Yeah, really. <laughs> it's all about consistency. Yeah. All right. Thanks for uh, tuning in. And uh, I do want to make a quick uh, announcement again uh, for our 5K that's coming up. Uh, please go to our website and uh, look for the link. If you're local here in town, then uh, please join us. We'll be running a 5K to raise money for uh, the State of Grace Foundation, which helps provide um, funding for people who can't afford functional medicine, who can't afford some of the testing. And uh, if you are not local uh, but would like to donate to that, there's a link there as well. So uh, State of Grace appreciates any and all support that you can give us. And uh, we thank you for tuning in and look forward to seeing what's next. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. It's uh, Saturday, June 18th at 9 a.m. here at Synapse. It's the 5K. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time. This has been Synapse Nips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.